Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. So uh, we're doing this little bonus episode of, of this show um, as a request, basically, of Joey, who, well, sort of. Um, Joey, why are we doing this? Well, so I had finally watched, after like years of people telling me to, I finally watched The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. And I'm like, hey, um, after all these people have told me to watch this, like, I want to talk about it with somebody because like, I feel like specifically about these shows more so than most other shows they reward rewatch and just because there's so much stuff that I have to watch and want to watch. And because I didn't like wholeheartedly love either. <gasps> I <laughs> want to talk about it to like get more out of it. Yeah. I, oh boy, I'm sorry. I, 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 I even understand straight people not loving Bly, but like, I don't, un- <laughs> I don't understand anyone not thinking Hill House is quite literally the single greatest piece of television art ever made. Well, and I like okay, Hill House and, a lot more than Bly Manor, but. And uh, I like Bly Manor slightly more than Hill House. And I love Maybe them you're both. gay. Yeah, who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so the three of us being basically, we have like a life and then we podcast. We can't actually have a conversation without recording it and putting it on the internet. So, um, <laughs> but that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to, we're going to talk about Hill house and Bly Manor. Um, and I think a little bit of WandaVision because I think, I think that also sort of fits into a, a general theme of those, of those three shows that is consistent. Um, and I think three, those three shows are also three of my, favorite slash what I would consider best shows of the last several years. Now, Joey, we, we, we talked um, in the first episode of season two and also in the first episode of season one about, um, you know, shows that are sort of defining of the moment. I uh, always thought I could do a whole episode just about the haunting of um, series. And also like those, those two series, while they are, I think, uh, incredible in their own right um, didn't really fit into that topic, and so I, I, I you know, I, I could have invoked certainly Hill House in that in that conversation, but it always felt like it needed its own time to have that discussion. And I think you you probably basically agree with that. Yeah, I think so. I think because there are like I think the way that these shows are made invites comparison between the two because the themes to a certain extent, and especially the cast are so crossover between all the stuff that he does the the um that I just think that it would be I think it would open up a rabbit hole of of things that would sort of devolve into it wouldn't do it justice in a way that just like cuz you know we'll talk about the X-Files again we already have we'll talk about the leftovers <laughs> again we already have like yeah. those things are okay to sort of you know talk about for a couple minutes because like I know that we have already talked about each of those and we will talk about them more but I feel like lumping like you know I don't want to short change like the man in the high castle but like with like three minutes left you're like hey also this show we're like uh yeah okay and then just yeah. like you know um yeah. i'm sure you'll talk about that again at some point but it just feels like everything that is made with a specific intent or purpose or whatever in mind kind of deserves to have its moment in the sun mm-hmm. and you know so we talked in the first episode about the um the shows that 
kind of cover the idea of a kind of collective existential anxiety, right? That was sort of the theme of all of those shows, whether it's um, you know, The Walking Dead or, or The Leftovers or Watchmen um, or Man in the High Castle. There, there's something about all of those that um, are really addressing something that is uh, societal and bigger. Whereas what I think is interesting, well, I think it's a couple of interesting things about um, the two haunting of series and WandaVision. Um, in that they're about ghosts and witches, <laughs> but in absolutely not the sort of way that we're accustomed to um, when it comes to television and and film and that sort of thing. Uh, it's you know, Hill House is not really a story about ghosts, and neither is Bly Manor. Um, the the haunting and the the ghost element of it are a um, a metaphor for some other kind of human experience that the haunting comes not from the ghosts, but from the stories of the individuals. And, you know, WandaVision is a story about witches, <laughs> but it is not a story about witches, right? Uh, it takes the sort of witch motif and uses that as a means of exploring something um, really interesting and new, which I, I haven't seen explored in a sort of major um television or, or television series or movie, which is the idea of what I think is at the core of WandaVision, which is if you had this power to alleviate your own suffering and alleviate your own grief, you would do it. And it sort of makes that its thesis, right? Like there's nothing special about the way that, you know, Wanda um, uh, works out her own problems given the power that she has. And of course there's that conversation between her and and, and um, Monica Rambo uh, about that that very very same thing so you know I don't think in the 90s or the 80s or even the early 2000s that people made television shows about personal grief and yet that seems to be an emerging theme as well um, and certainly seems to be the underlying theme in two different ways really of um, both Hill House and Bly Manor I really want to interact with this idea of we didn't do shows about personal grief in the 90s, because I do understand what you're trying to say, that there was a dearth of emotionally accessible material capable of expressing the idea of loss in a significant way, right? But when I think about shows like Life Goes On, which was a show about, you know, a family with a neuroatypical child, when I think about my so-called life, which, you know, when you think about my so-called life, you, you have to think about the fact that Rayanne overdoses and it's Angela's mother who gets her stomach pumped. And then Rayanne goes on to betray Angela and steal Jordan Catalano. So like, it really is about personal grief. It's, um, it's the intimacy of the story. And that's what I love about you saying all of this, it is ghosts, it isn't ghosts, you know, because it's about the intimacy of the story. One of the things that TV shows used to struggle to do was find a way to create an emotionally accessible, um, an emotionally accessible representation of the inside of our heads, right? And WandaVision is so personal because it really is her expectation of how the world would work around her, right? And the thing about Hill House is that the ghosts are personalized to the people in a way that is indicative of the baggage that we carry, that we slough off on our friends and our family and our loved ones. Like, there is something, like, uh, you know, I don't want to go after anybody I actually know. But, like, if you know somebody who has surviving sibling syndrome, 
and they're close to you. That's something you become aware of, and it's baggage you carry with you. And that's why the ghosts in Hill House are this manifestation of grief that can be shared because they're a shared grief of the family. It's almost like um, like an August Osage County, but with ghosts. Well, I think and just very quickly before we get to Hill House is that I think, you know, you saying that they're ghost stories that being ghost stories is like one of the very, very last lines of Blind Manor is when we find out that it's actually adult Flora mm. sitting there about to be married, even though, um, you know. She doesn't remember any of it because she has escaped that to whatever extent, right? And then we have Carla Gugino, which we find out at the very end is adult Jamie. And Flora says to her that, um, you know, I don't, you said it's a ghost story. I don't think it's a ghost story. I think it's a love story. And so just like, it's framing that, right? Like, um, it's the same thing. Like, it's it's the same story, but it's framing it within the context of the trappings and the tropes and the dynamics and the experiences and all of that as a, a way to show love as opposed to show fear, which I think both shows do. Um, I think it's a very nice way to sort of frame that. Yeah, I, I also think that what, what I really like about the two series as a collective, and I, and I hope that Flanagan goes on with this. I think it's a really, it's a, it's a really great template that he's using here. And um, the way that he... Uh, adapts the spirit of Shirley Jackson's work in Hill House and adapts the spirit of um, Henry James' work in, in Bly Manor. Um, I, I think that's a really great sort of creative thesis, and um, I hope he carries on with it because I think there's you know several series that can be made here. Um, but but if you were to distinguish between the two in terms of the what the ghost story represents, I, you know I think Bly Manor is a story about. Um, personal loss right it's it 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 is um it's not really about grief and trauma the way that hill house is it's about the um the 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 things that you lose either in memory um or or because of memory right so the 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 possibilities that could have been um, were you able to live, right? Or the things that you lost when you um, recovered uh, from from a trauma, right? And I think it's it, the way it explores that is really, really interesting. Well, so as a guy both who is a homosexual and in recovery, these two shows really hit me really hard. And it's so funny that you were like, Blind Manor is not about grief and loss. No, for me, it's about the death of your straight identity. It's a woman who's coming to terms with her homosexuality and coming to realize that what she wanted for herself, this nice, normal, beautiful life, is something she'll never be able to have. And the ghosts represent the death of the woman she always expected to be, but instead has to be true to herself. So the ghosts are the baggage of her previous life, which is a common theme for these ghosts. Whereas I think the ghosts of Hill House are ghosts versus self. For me, the ghosts of Bly Manor are ghosts versus society, because each ghost or person in Hill House is met by some sort of societal uh, disconnect, some part of where they are the other in an intended situation. And I feel as though the hardest part of, of seeing these two works as two separate works is there's these binding agents that you can think of as, oh, it's an Easter egg, but they're not Easter eggs. They're binding agents of a sense of... Um, a sense of ethereal theology where like it's the forever house. When you hear that word forever house, it is such a punch to the fucking gut. It like, 
it it hurt. It made me feel like a, a kind of betrayed, a kind of sick that fiction should have the capability of bringing you to. It was a perversion of something that I viewed as sacred from Hill House. But mm-hmm. that's because they are these ideas that are meant to be malleable to each person. You know, the idea of happiness is very different for two different people. And I really think that there is something about the ghosts of Bly Manor being a societal representation, whereas the ghosts of Hill House are a personal representation. I think there's something in that contrast because we are who we are as people because of the reflection of society that we see in ourselves and society is created as a reflection of people. So it's sort of like a two-way mirror that the ghosts move through from house to Bly, from Bly to house. And I think what also complicates the forever house thing, like, I mean, I think what you said, Nico, is, is spot on about how in, the, in, in Hill House, it's like this positive things, right? Like, it's like, you know, our family is filled with love, but we keep moving around because this is how we make money. And eventually we're going to have enough money that we can live in one place and be there forever. And we're going to, it's going to be wonderful. And then in the second one, it's like, we're going to be here forever because we cannot leave. And I think what also makes it even more sinister, and I'm not sure if this is exactly tying in or if it's a different point altogether, but the fact that they're telling these like seven and nine year old or whatever kids like, Hey, yeah, like this is a good thing. Like a forever house is a good thing. It's like, but also like, I need you to die so that I can haunt your body and like, you know, be a person for like, it's just like, Oh, like it's a manipulation of the ideal and the term and the, you know, all of it to exploit these naive, you know, children. It's the Pied Piper. Come with me, kids. Yeah. I'm going to bring you to forever. I'm going to bring you to happiness. All you have to do is drink this drink. Come on, it's no big. I've been watching a lot of cult shows lately. <laughs> um, my, so, so my husband and I are obsessed with murder shows. Like that's that's kind of my life. Like horror is my life. Right? It's my favorite genre. And so I'm obsessed with murder shows. And my husband is obsessed with SNL. And SNL just did this phenomenal musical music video thing for um, murder show murder show murder show gonna watch a murder show and it's really great and at the end it's somebody's like oh but have you heard about cult shows and so we started watching cult shows and now all i can keep thinking is how do they get everybody to drink this drink but like that 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 is what this show is about it's about the weakness and the fallibility in all of us to create these trusting situations because you're right they're using this idea of you're going to be with us in a family in a happy place forever. You've lost so much. Don't you want the word forever? Your children, children who know no sense of permanence, impermanence, mortality, or immortality. You've lost so much already. Wouldn't you love the word forever? And, you know, I say to myself, you would never be able to get me to move to Jonestown. But if I were a broken child from a different world in a different place, you know what? Maybe somebody could try to get me to do that, and maybe I wouldn't be the same man I am. Like, it really is something very personal about that that sense of betrayal. Um, let's talk about the two different series because I think it's interesting that the three of us have um, kind of slightly different opinions on how they rank. So, Joey, I'm going to start with you because yeah. you um, clearly favor Hill House to Bly Manor. Yeah. Um, aside from the fact that it is the first show in history to have turned uh, Michael Hoisman from a Universal Eleven to like a New York Eight, um, that was beautiful, and <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, why do you favor Hill House to Blind Man? Oh shit, he's Dario Naharis. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, I just realized that. Okay. okay. Yeah, he's a hot man who turns okay. into like the third most attractive person on that show. Yeah. 
Like that's a, it's a weird like and you know as a uh, as, as a straight man I I find all the women <laughs> on that show very attractive in a way that like I think out of that context I wouldn't but there's something seductive about the sadness I think as well I don't know mm. like it kind of elevates everything I don't know okay so I think with regards to Hill House versus Bly Manor I think that there's nothing in Bly Manor that touches the two episode streak of the Bent Neck Lady and Two Storms. Um, I think that there is so okay so I think to frame things properly in terms of my opinion of the two I think I would like each more if and when I watch them again I would be more inclined to watch Hill House again because I like where it got but I think I I was having a very difficult time early in Hill House um sinking my teeth into it because I could tell that they were doing a lot of heavy lifting, that they were layering that Mike Flanagan and his team were like layering things to, to lead to a payoff. And I didn't know what that payoff was. And then there's the two episode stretch in the middle of the bent neck lady and the two and two storms where it's like, Oh, I get it now. And from then on out, like, I don't think the show again reaches that like incredible height, but like, the payoff of where we had built to and that catharsis sort of for the explanation or like just the storytelling of those two episodes made the rest worth it. Um, I think in Blind Manor, I think there's the episode um, where we find out that, uh, oh God, what's her name? Mrs. Gross is a ghost spoilers. Um, but like the, un, like where she's like unstuck in time. And I think that that has a similar kind of payoff where you're like, Oh, I finally get it. But I think by that point I hadn't been hooked. And I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm sort of struggling. I, I know that like, cause I, it was one of those shows where I, I said before Nico, you know, emphatically agreed that like it rewards rewatch, but it felt like, oh, you're going to need to watch this again. And I, I was kind of off put by that, like almost insistence because mm. I, I'm like, mm. I, I'm giving you 19 hours. Like give me a story that I can <laughs> sort of get, you know, on the first time through that I shouldn't have to watch it twice to like fully appreciate it. Um, but I, I think that the, why I like Hill House more is because it, it reached greater heights and had a greater payoff. And I think that like those two episodes in particular, you know, are not necessarily my two favorite hours of TV ever, but I think that given the framing of this, like, I think that they are masterfully done in a way that like the other say 17 hours or whatever are good. Like, I don't think this is really a bad hour, but I think that it's, those are the greatest elements of like what these types of stories are trying to do. So I'm I, 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 I'm sure you're going to ask me what my ranking is at some point, but I have to reply to Joey first because Joey said so many smart things. Yeah. So, okay. First of all, I, re- <laughs> I really, really need to agree with your, your assertion that the high point of both show – well, your, at least your assertion of the high point of high, Hill House comes before the ending. And I want to point everybody to Shakespearean theory for a second just to be that faggot, right? I guess, <laughs> I guess to be that rude-ass academic, okay? So to be that rude-ass academic for a second – the third act of a five-act structure is the climax, right? So the last two acts should be falling action. By the middle of an by the middle of art, you should know the outcome. It should be clear. 
like when you get to Lavibo, like when you get to Christmas bells and rent, you can see that the family is going to form, but that this is still the hard, gritty streets of New York where all of the homeless break into song. So that it's going to fall apart at some point. You know, once you get to that role of two episodes in Hill House, you know the outcome. Yeah. You, the tragedy has struck and the tragedy will strike again, but there's hope because now there's something inside. And that's the thing about the final episode of Bly as well. The final episode of Bly is like a coda to the idea of Bly. It's almost an afterthought. And it's the afterthought that tells you everything. I'll be honest. I really, really like Bly. Hill House is my single favorite season of television in history. So, like, I think Hill House is, like, damn near perfect. And I think there is just so much to be said about the the structure being exactly what you said. It's sort of like – it's kind of like the way these shows view life. Life is just the point at which – the end of life is just the point at which you know what's coming next, right? And that's sort of what these shows are about. No one dies and is done. They die and then they have new lives as ghosts. After these shows end, there's still more show. That's the rest of the life. Right. I got to say, like, I don't think that Bly is a better show. Um, I like it more. It resonated with me more. And I think that this is entirely to do with – where I am in life, right? Like my age, my, my status as, you know, a father, whatever it is. Um, I, I don't think that I would say that one is better than the other. Um, I would say that like, they both made me cry like a freaking baby, uh, Bly more so, right? And there's something about sort of where I am as an adult in looking back at my own life and sort of taking stock of it that, Bly um, hit me in, as the kids say, the feels uh, more than Hill House did. And also, I think in some ways, Hill House, um, I shielded myself from a little bit because I, as someone who like has a family and is raising kids, um, a lot of the stuff that it wants you to feel like I refuse to feel right now because I'm just not there yet. Right. Um, Which I also was one of the things I think is so beautiful and brilliant about both of these series is that, you know, Flanagan is, is really great at suspense and horror and he knows his game and he's very, very talented and he's a great writer and he assembles great casts and it's just wonderful stuff. Um, but he also is not, he, he speaks to human emotions and he does so in a way that serves the story as opposed to the other way around, which is what I really think is just phenomenal about him as a, as a creator. Um, one of the things about Hill House that I think is really brilliant, and Nico, what you just said about the, the the Shakespearean structure is spot on. One of the things that I think is so brilliant about it is that it still reserves a um, a surprise with a great deal of meaning for the end, which is when you find out that the locked room is the same room, and that um, the room. It speaks to the emotional needs of all of the characters, right? So it's Theo's dance studio, it's Luke's uh, treehouse, etc. And you know, it, it it uses that in a way to, first of all, like give you a mystery to solve, and when you when you solve it, it it, it it's it's sort of that aha moment. But also in a show that tells you what the ending is early on, it also says, but there's another layer to this. There's another, like, you know, there's, an, there's more depth to this. And that is that uh, all of these characters are experiencing the same thing, the same trauma, but through very, very different lenses. And 
that we can have both shared trauma but also individual experiences of that trauma that is that is um, both unifying but also um, unique to the individual. You know, and I think I think you said something that I love that I'd never considered before. Flanagan puts the story before his ego in a really extremely he serves the story better than he serves himself as a creator, I think, because he makes choices that like I get real fucking precious about my characters and shit. Like, I'm like, no, you can't do that to that person. I love them too much. And the person I'm talking to is myself with the pen. So like, I make myself defend my own characters. Flanagan doesn't do that. He's not concerned about second seasons of these shows. So he's willing to do things that as a creator, I'm like, no, that's, that's nausea. I can't do that. Stop it. And I just think that's really, I'd never considered that. He does what's better for the story than himself as a creator. And that's really powerful. I think it's really well said. I think that's hard to do as a creator, right? Where it's, I guess that's the goal, but it's hard, right? It's how do you tell the ideal story without, because it's not like it's Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House, right? Like it's like a name that if you know, <laughs> you know, but if if you don't, it's just like, oh, I didn't know that this guy also did Dr. Sleep or whatever, right? Like, And, and that's and that's also what I think is, 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 um, you know, like uh, Ruth Franklin, who's who's a um, Shirley Jackson historian who who wrote a phenomenal uh, biography of her recently, and she wrote reviews for every episode of Hill House, and she um, loved the series. She had some issues with it. Her issues with it were not necessarily like it's a disgrace to Shirley Jackson's memory. Um, her issues with it were, were, you know, she had a couple of storytelling gripes in a show that she loved. And, um, you know, she, she reviewed every, every episode of um, Stephen King, uh, who also, you know, loves Shirley Jackson as well, obviously. And, and uh, just has the same opinion about Hill House that Nico does. Um, and, and yeah, when it comes to Henry James, like turning of the turn of the screw has been uh, adapted a gazillion times. And there's no reason to adapt it anymore. And what I think is so great about what Flanagan does is that he honors the um, the spirit. Like these two series are really tribute to Shirley Jackson and and Henry James in a way that, you know, just doing a rote translation of these things is has been done, and sometimes well, sometimes poorly. Liam Neeson, um, but when you when you take someone's work and you say like i've internalized this and i've and i've you know these stories have had an impact on the way that i think and the way that i tell stories and now i'm going to tell a story using this dna but in a way that's completely different i don't find this to be an, an affront to shirley jackson and henry james i find it to be the exact opposite right it is a way of saying the way that you told the story and the stories that you told influenced me so much that i want to tell a story with that inspiration in my own way and and i actually think that that's a you know if i were henry james right? <laughs> like that's what i would want from people adapting my stories i don't just i don't want the same story told um the exact same way i actually had occasion to think about now uh, if you're so my favorite novel and i'm like such a seventh grader with his first ever spark notes right so laugh at me in a minute but my favorite novel of all time is Great Expectations by Dickens. And I know, like, what a baby-ass Dickens to even make your favorite, right? But, like... Oh, no, that's a solid choice. Like, I... No, I I, I stand with you. I think Miss Havisham might be one of the greatest, most thought-out characters in the history of fiction. I think that Stella... Estella represents so many things that are mind-bendingly 
awful about the depictions of women by men in fiction from that time, yet was still somehow progressive in other ways. I can go on and on about great expectations for a million years, but for as many good things as I could say about that goddamn 400-page novel, I can say an equal number of horrendous things about the 97 adaptation starring Ethan Hawke, Robert DeGuero, <laughs> and Gwyneth Paltrow. And the reason I had occasion to think of it is because the soundtrack is actually perfect. The soundtrack is Duncan Sheik, Poe, Chris Cornell, Mono. The soundtrack is actually spectacular, right? So I still actually hear some of those songs in my head from time to time where one came up on my uh, YouTube super mix and I was like, oh shit, that record. And, you know, sometimes you take apart a work, you deconstruct it to create a new work out of it. And when you put it back together, it's unrecognizable but you've kept the name on it. So, you know, it's totally on topic, I swear. It's not, though. So when (laughs) they first went to adapt Twilight as a film, they were going to make it about Bella the cop vampire hunter. (laughs) Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Hold the phone. What the fuck are you talking about? When they went to adapt Twilight as a movie, the original script of the film was going to be Bella as a cop who was a vampire hunter. What the fuck? They just thought they had to get away from the problematic source material. (laughs) (laughs) And so they tried and it didn't, you know, it it didn't go exactly the way they thought. So they went back to the classic sort of kind of. And, you know, if they went back to the uh, original classic, I guess they would have just had to make it Harry Potter. So um, the bigger problem. Right with this whole, we're in an era of adapting work and re and reframing work, and revising work. Is people are so fucking precious about what all of these things came from, and I just wish that for one minute, people in academia and people who are fans of novels could maybe see that that sort of precious behavior is the equivalent of comic gatekeeping. When people say, no, 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 that can't be Thanos because Thanos didn't do the snap. He did this other thing. So I don't like Endgame. Well, you sound like an idiot, right? You're saying that it's not the same as the original source material. So you're saying that everything ever done was done the best way it could be the first time. You're saying there's no value to reviewing, revising, and reconsidering the contextualization of that situation and everyone's reaction to it, right? And like, I'll admit, I'm not a huge Shirley Jackson fan. Which, Ooh. All right, hanging up. No, it's good. No, no, like I but <laughs> but that's literally what I mean. I'm not a I, huge I'm just not a huge Shirley Jackson fan. I'll be honest. I was like, isn't she Lois Lowry? Like <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's it it goes back to that joke. I guess that's what uh separates the Liza Minnelli's from the Rosalind Kinds, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. So like, that's that's really what it is for me. It, I, I really do get people being like, oh no, don't touch this precious work. But like, some of the greatest adaptations of things have come from the most unexpected sources. Anybody who's ever seen Clueless will tell you it's the best Emma movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the best Austin movies, and that, also this reminds me of of Watchmen, Joey. Like this is this is exactly what Lindelof did, yeah. right? It's 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 the Lindelof did it in a way that's even bolder. That where he just he straight out said and like posted 
Twitter threads about like, here's what I'm doing, just so you're not expecting me to ruin your favorite, you know, graphic novel of all time. Um, and it really is, I think, you know, what Lindelof did with Watchmen is is a lot of what um, what Flanagan's doing here, but in a more <laughs> maybe like you know the watchman stands out there are in are are more um sort of militant and in larger numbers than the um shirley jackson stands <laughs> on twitter right um well, that's so, because so shirley jackson's risk. beard is second place to alan moore's beard if <laughs> shirley jackson would just grow a motherfucking santa beard and start praying to the dark slug that made the planet then shirley jackson could get hardcore stands herself i mean casting elizabeth moss as shirley jackson and did wonders to rat, you know, skyrocket her up my list of favorite people. But I see your point. We should talk about that movie at some point too, but that's going to be a different episode. Um, yeah. So, so let's get back, Joey. Let's get back to you for a second. So, um, you know, Nico and I, I think, are mostly on the same page about about most of this stuff. And I, I mm-hmm. think our, our our relative ranking of of Blind Manor and uh, Hill House is incidental. But um, what was it about uh, for you, like your own experience of the two series? do you think that makes Hill House um, sort of clearly the superior one of the two? So I think there's a couple things at play here. Number one, I watched them back to back. Like I didn't watch them. I would imagine, did you both watch them sort of effectively as they aired and aired is the wrong word, but they, you know, you had like a year in between or whatever. Yeah, I did. Nico. Yeah. I watched Hill House within, I started the premiere within 48 hours of release because uh, I am a big horror guy, and this was like cerebral horror that I've been looking forward to. It had so much positive press in advance, and because of that, and because of the fact that I think we watched it four times, uh, you know, in a year, we watched Bly Manor almost entirely within forty-eight hours. Okay, so I think part of the reason why I didn't like Bly Manor as much as Hill House is because I did not have the benefit of hindsight or time in between. Like, okay, taking another further step back. I started doing this thing this year where I was watching a handful of shows and cycling through them because I am, as I think about it more, I am staunchly anti-binge, and I don't think that that's bad necessarily for everyone. Like, if you love a thing and you want to watch it all in one sitting, by all means, go for it. But the way that my brain works and processes story and sort of understands things, it's better for me to have some space or time in between things. So generally speaking, the fastest I will watch a show is one episode a day until it's done. Um, I did this other crazier thing this year. Where I was like, there's a bunch of shows that have about the same number of episodes that I'd love to see. Like, let me just cycle through all these and like, see if I can like, you know, keep them all going and watch a bunch and whatever. And so I was cycling through five, including haunting of Hill house. And then I was like, Five is too many. Like, there's too much going on here for me to remember. I'm going to cut this down to three. So, like, this whole, like, you know, balancing act that, like, is just a peek inside my brain that nobody needs. Anyway. <laughs> so I like, actually really needed to know. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, understanding how you ingest this show. And, like, it, as soon as you said that stuff, I was like, oh, yeah, well, because he loves Lost. Well, yeah, because like I love I love TV, but I love like planning TV more, and so I was like, okay, so like I can do sort of like a sort of a religious, spiritual, emotional thing where I'm alternating Hill House and then Blind Manor with the OA and with my rewatch of The Leftovers, which are all sort of thematically similar, but also all kind of wildly different in execution. And so that's what I was doing. And so I finished the OA earlier this week, and I finished Hill House and The Leftovers this weekend. So I'm starting another thing in the next cycle or whatever. So part of the reason I like Blind Manor less than Hill House is because I didn't have the 
year or so in between to like separate the two like to me it was like this is all kind of one series which i know it's not but it kind of is um at least the way that i watched it the other thing i think is that hill house does a thing that i have never seen any other show do as well which is casting children like the children they cast in hill house are so incredibly good not only as actors but as like embodiments of their older selves absolutely and whatever yeah. they did in the casting or the acting or the coaching or whatever the mannerisms and such to get all these kids to be that like it's just it's immaculate so then you go to blind manor and it felt like at first and it took me a while to sort of get over this that they were just like hey look at these creepy fucking kids um <laughs> which i think is part of it but i also think that like it didn't have the heavy lift that Hill House was using its children for. And then to further muddy those waters, when you find out that effectively these two children are being haunted by ghosts of a couple who used to bone, I'm like, this is real creepy and gross. Like I can't get on like, that's like, I know that's to a certain extent, like the point and the sorrow of it, but I'm like, Oh, this is them. This is real gross. And so I think there was kind of a few different things at play and immediately comparing the two and not having time to like fully process or digest or to rewatch or whatever. And I just, again, you know, I think that's it. It all again, not that blind manner is bad. I just think that Hill house is better. I think I would like each again more on second watch, but I think, I think it would be a heavier lift. Again, I have so much that I want to watch for the first time that I'm not really mentally like aside from my favorite shows of all time, like the leftovers, I'm not really taking time to rewatch things, but I think it would take a lot for me to rewatch blind manor anytime soon. Like I could see myself, you know, come the fall or whatever. It's like seasonally appropriate or whatever to watch that. Like I might do that somewhat soon, but I just think that there is a lot, not necessarily about the actual story or the subject matter of the show that kind of was against blind manner from the beginning um i also just kind of like the i don't know i i think what i liked most about blind manner was like the help and i know that i don't know if that's an appropriate term but like the adults you know like the the chef and the gardener like i like when they were around without the kids and like there's yeah. so much especially early on where it's just like it's just you know danny with the kids and i'm like oh this is kind of a slog for me and i don't know why exactly but that just it's where I wound up. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, let, let's give a little shout out. Also, I mean, you know, singing the praises of Mike Flanagan here, but uh, it's so hard to find good child actors and to work with them and to get those performances out of them. And, I, and in both of those series, I mean, God, you're right. Like they, <laughs> the the performances of all the children in all both of those series are phenomenal, um, especially in Hill House for sure. And I, that has a lot to do with. You know, something we've got to talk about with Hill House, which is the genius of the casting director of that show, who is the person who must have been like, okay, hear me out, old version of Henry Thomas, Tim Hutton. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then I'm like, oh my God, I totally see that. Tim Hutton is like nine years older than Henry Thomas is, by the way. But that works so well. And it works so well in part because of, first of all, there are a lot of sort of weird facial similarities between Hutton and Thomas, but also because Henry Thomas has a perpetual youthful look. And Tim Hutton has looked like 
way older than his years for his entire career. And there's something really brilliant about taking that step and being like, here's what we're going to do. You know, not unlike casting Sean Connery as Henry Harrison Ford's father, even though Sean Connery is like 13 years older than Harrison Ford is, right? Um, it's that it's that ability to be like, who cares? Let's just look at right. sort of how this works uh, in terms of chemistry and the way these two actors um, work on either, you know, playing a scene together or playing the same character and, and does it work. And, you know, to me, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, that is fucking brilliant. And and this is such a meticulously thought out show. Um, and both of those series are so carefully thought out from from set design to acting to the, you know, random ghosts in the background of scenes that you don't even notice, right? Like, it's just so it's so careful and it's so particular. And I just, I think that resonates with me almost as much as anything else in the series does in both series. I think one of the things that truly uh, impressed me the most, right. Was that they were so willing to, I'm trying to think about the way to say it. They were so willing to create a, world in which accuracy mattered right it wasn't just about selling you these ghosts it was about selling you the authenticity of these ghosts like witness marks like that was such an enormous part of creating the context for this show was authority was sincerity and i think that is probably one of the things that i'm walking away the most with is this sense of the world matters as much as the people. The house felt real. The house felt alive. And I mean, that's obviously the point. But like, it did it in a way that didn't feel like I was being spoken down to. And I do frequently feel like shows forget how not to talk down to you. Joey, any uh, any last thoughts on this? I'm glad I watched them. I think that if you are out there, like I think that there is a tendency to see a thing that is horror and not want to do it because it's the genre. But again, like we were talking about before, I don't also don't know that if you're if you're on the fence about these shows, you're probably not listening to a podcast uh, about these shows. Um, so I don't know exactly who this message is for. But if there's someone in your life, let's get real for a sec. There's someone in your life who like doesn't like horror, but like I mean, these are explicitly like they are they are conf- both shows. Each show is confronting themes and topics and it's doing it in a way that horror doesn't typically do. Like I think like a lot of horror is explicitly about these kind of things. It's about fear and loss and grief and whatever. But I think it's usually very heavily metaphored and it's like, well, Jason or Freddie actually means this. And like, this is like much more in your face is like, no, we're going to talk about how like we're all fucked up. Like this is like very in your face about it. And I think it's the boldness that is both refreshing and could i can imagine come off as like off-putting because it's like yeah i get it right like if you if you this if i can imagine if this doesn't hit for you you will be like oh this is like the worst thing in the world like i, I don't know that that's true of many people but like i can see that if you don't connect with this it's um, just gonna be a boring slog forever yes that like it is so i don't think earnest is the right word but it is so consistent in what it is doing and how it is doing that that you have to kind of give it props. And I think that there is the sort of heavy lift or the figuring out of like 
I see they're doing something and I can't figure like I, I don't want to like toot my own horn. Um, but I like to think of myself as a pretty smart guy and a pretty astute and educated TV watcher. And like even with that in mind, through the first four episodes of Hill House, I was like, I have no idea what the fuck this show is doing. Like, I I trust that it is doing something because of the word of mouth of a lot of smart people that I'm friends with who have given me recommendations of this show. But I don't know what this is building to. I know that it's building towards something, but like it is overlapping itself in a way that feels almost more like a negative than a positive at times. And then when it finally actually lands that punch or whatever, it's like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I was right to give it the time. And I think it's hard, going back to what I was saying about, you know, having so much to watch to like, hey, this is a great show, but you really need to give it like five hours before it really like really delivers. Um, and maybe you're hooked from the beginning. I don't know, but I feel like that's a that's a tall order to give someone in 2021 or just like, you know, like you really got to give it like half the first, half the, half the run time before it's like, oh, okay. Because um, it's not like, if you're not hooked in 20 minutes, you can turn it off, right? Like, it's just, it's it's tough. Yeah, and I also got to say, Joey, that like I, so I think we can have a, a whole different conversation about the the way that I think some streaming services are now forcing us to watch shows once once a week. I, I actually had a conversation with somebody last weekend about this very thing. He's like, I just wish The Mandalorian was out, like, all in, like, WandaVision just all in one go, and I'm like, ah, no, no, no. Like, right. I love that I finally have a Friday show again, yeah. where I can just, like, watch a show on Friday and talk about it for a fucking week with everybody I know, and then watch the next episode next Friday, and like, yeah, of course I love instant gratification, but, you know, The Mandalorian, WandaVision, none of that shit would be anywhere near as good, right, if, if it was just all in one go and because well, it also I, feels like there's I, a pressure there's a pressure to watch that thing on the day because it's like oh absolutely there's like Even eight, with, inter, there's like eight websites that i follow that i cannot read until i spend 35 or 40 minutes the and only watch this thing, thing i would prefer is that disney plus put wandavision and the mandalorian at 8 p.m <laughs> and then, so i'd have to go the whole day without being right. like tiptoeing around social media anyways um the thing i i think is 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 uh an element of these two shows that i also really just love is that you know i watched both of them with my wife and, and we we both were like yeah i can deal with one episode at a time maybe two maybe two right like it's just it's so it's so emotional and it and it, it it's so draining in a good way but it, it's it's it requires a great deal of emotional investment that it doesn't reward binging all every episode all in one sitting and, and i i think that's also kind of part of the genius of it is that each episode is itself a um, a movie that requires you to invest. And if you have the emotional capacity to watch all of Hill House in one sitting, God bless you. But, um, you know, it, most people don't. And I think that's a good thing. And I think because at a certain point, you're just abusing yourself. Like it is literally meant to be a complex work with a lot of emotional levels to it. It's not meant to be ingested like that. You know, some drinks are meant to be sipped. Beautifully said, uh, Joey. Uh, overall, what, what what grade would you give um, Hill House and Blind Manor, respectively? At the risk of Nico never talking to me again, <laughs> bearing in mind the one viewing, and I am generally, I have said over and over again, I will like it more. I would give Hill House uh, a B plus, very very close to an A minus, but like I'll call it a B plus to be safe, and I would call Blind Manor like a C plus, and I'm Ooh, so sorry. Wow. I'm wow. so sorry, Nico. A plus B plus in that order. 
Um, you know, it's one of those things where like I just magically connected with this work in a really special way, and that was super great for me. I feel the same way about Alien, the first Alien. Like I, I just connect with Alien in a really visceral way. I connect with Grant Morrison's New X Men in a really visceral way, and there's nothing wrong with not loving those three super duper um, critically well loved works. All three of them are critically, you know, saluted, but. I still know people that are like, I can't read New X-Men because it's about Xavier's twin sister who he psychically aborted as a fetus, gaining power and raising up a robot space army to kill all of the X-Men. No, that's the first issue. That's literally the first issue. (laughs) So, like, everybody's kind of like, what? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's the best. And they're like, that's not the X-Men at all. What do you mean? There's a what do you mean one of the main characters is a guy named Phantom X? And I'm like, no, it's a reference to French cinema. It works. And like, <laughs> you know, I get into these situations where I recognize works are for me that aren't for other people. That doesn't make them bad or the other person wrong. You know, it's when art is about pain, when art is about healing. When art is about being able to confront yourself, we don't all have the same demons. Like, I mean, that's literally the point of fucking Hill House. We don't all have the same ghosts. And, you know, for me, Mike Flanagan is my bent neck lady. But for Joey, Joey's bowler hat guy, I just realized that's bowler hat guy is the guy from uh, (laughs) the Robinsons. Joey's bowler hat guy is Damon Lindelof. So, um, You know, everybody's kind of got their something, but that's the magic of ghost stories. That's what they're for. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm i going to say, so so kind of addressing something that, Nico, you said earlier. Um, I actually don't like horror at all, um, but I say that with a, with a big caveat. Um, I'm, I'm a big um, uh connoisseur as it were of of victorian horror and um of ghost stories uh and i like really good sophisticated horror so um i i don't like torture porn <laughs> like i can't watch saw um and i have a very visceral reaction to that sort of thing so horror is not my 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 go-to and i think one of the things that um puts Bly Manor at a slight favorite for me is that it is more rooted in that sort of Henry James Victorian horror sort of um, milieu. And uh, if if I was going to have my parents watch one of those two series, it, it would be Bly Manor, right? Uh, because I just think it's easier to... Um, to digest than Hill House is. Now, having said that, like the horror that I do like, um, I think Joey and I are pretty much on the same page here. Like, um, you know, Midsummer is a movie that completely fucked with me for weeks, but but I, I can watch it and I um, love it in a way, like it's a wrong word, but that's the sort well, of It's the right word. I, You're right. You're correct. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the sort of horror that I, that I find emotionally useful. Um, Along with like the Vavitch, uh, which I know um, that's like the like that movie. I hated it the day I saw it. I saw it again and I liked it. And then like ever since then, all me and my husband ever do is say to each other, "Black Philip, do you want to live deliciously?" <laughs> Black Philip is the greatest uh, cinematic villain of all time. I will I will humbly brag right now that I have a can of Black Philip uh, hard cider. That when that movie debuted at Fantastic Fest, there was some people going around with like Black Philip branded hard cider. So I just have a can of it still open, still unopened. Uh, on my shelf somewhere. So uh, Black Phillip says, you are wicked. 
but hard disagree with John. The greatest cinematic villain of all time is Gus Fring, and I can't be convinced otherwise. I literally think Gus Fring is the scariest thing ever committed to celluloid, ever. And that has just to look. Be- just look at Box Cutter. Box Cutter alone, that one episode alone, it's like, oh shit. He is quite literally the scariest fictional character of all time because he's not fictional in the least. Uh, but like in in regard to what you said about you can't do Saw, Saw isn't horror. And like this is something that the the medium is going to have to come to terms with at some point. Genre is something that commits evolutionary mitosis, right? Genre splits in two, but then becomes two new things. And we see that with the idea of the ghost story. Because you're right, there is the Henry James ghost story, and nobody can take that from anybody, but it is impossible to deny the reality of the Hill House ghost story, right? This more modernized ghost story. So genre is this thing that splits further down the line, and if you're asking me my opinion, Saw has more in common with an episode of Friends than it does with an episode of Hill House, (laughs) And that's because Saw is about putting people in uncomfortable situations and forcing you to watch it. Whereas Hill House is about forcing you to confront an emotional situation. So like Hill House is lost. Saw is friends. And like, we're going to have to, as a culture, acknowledge that there is no medium video games. There are, 30 sub mediums within video games and saying that all video games belong to video games means that all filmed media belongs to film and it doesn't. That's, um, that's brilliantly put. And, and honestly, you, you have been able to um, articulate the, the struggle that I've, I've had when talking about horror, right. Um, in a way that I've never been able to. Um, and yeah, it's, it's right. Sci-fi is similar. It, there's so many movies in sci-fi sections of video stores, or at least there was back in 20 years ago when there was video stores. Um, but that I was like, this isn't sci-fi. <laughs> like, Star Wars is not a sci-fi movie. Uh, it's a fantasy in space. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. But it, that's the point, right? When I say I don't like horror, um, I do. I just, and I, and I don't want to say like, I like good horror because that's elitist and stupid and not true. Well, yeah. Now the new term is elevated horror, which is yes, it's, right. It's just, it's all so stupid, but like, I like good stories and stories that as Nico says, force me to confront things that I don't necessarily want to confront. And Midsummer was that movie for me where I was like, holy guys, I, it fucked me up for days, right? In a way that I was like, it was useful. Like I needed it, right? And and um, and it sucked, but that's what a movie should be able to do. Um, and that's why horror is useful, uh, you know, broadly speaking in general. And I'll say the same thing about Hill House and, and, and Bly Manor. Um, that Hill House, I guess... I'm going to be honest here. Like one of the reasons why I don't prefer it to Bly Manor is, as I was alluding to before, I'm not really ready to have that ripped out of me yet. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not quite ready to to address that pain. And Bly Manor um, deals with something that I think I've already kind of dealt with in my in my own in my own life and I'm more willing to analyze. But that's what's so great about both of these series is that they're both wonderfully put together and 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 beautifully staged and you know i think just objectively quality uh storytelling and television 
And it just comes down to sort of like where you are in life and what your opinion is. Um, and so bottom line for me, like I would give Hill House an A plus and I would give Bly Manor an A and I would say that I like Bly Manor better and I don't think those two things are contradictory. Well, and I, I want to build on something you're saying because like I, I think everybody says they have a favorite movie, but like most people don't have a favorite movie. They have several favorite movies. And it's you- Paddington too. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite movies are Alien. Miss Congeniality, uh, Metropolis by Fritz Lang. Oh, yeah. Which is like one of the most perfect movies just ever made. Uh, Mary Poppins. And there's this movie of a gay porn star who has this like thing on his junk and he's trying to read Shakespeare while it's jacking him off. And that's a great movie too. And these five movies are perfect. But like, if you're asking me which one I can watch regularly, oh, the one that I have the easiest time watching is I put Miss Congeniality on and I just have a great time of it. And I do every scene word for word because it's my favorite movie. But Alien is the movie that I go to when I want to have a, like, a fun time with some friends. Like, it's an easy movie to put on because like, you can walk out and you come back and you go, oh, which scare is this one? And like, you can walk past it, right? Uh, if I'm having an emotional time, I want to watch Mary Poppins. If I have six hours and nothing else to do with my eyes, that's when I put on Metropolis. And the other movies for In the Shower. And so I think that it's really important that you keep track of the fact that like it's okay to like multiple things multiple ways. If I'm having a really emotional time and something horrible just happened and I just lost someone that I loved, I'm not putting on Alien. Like that's not going to bring me joy. In that moment, Alien would be terrible. So even though I would give Alien an A+, I would say that sucks. Like <laughs> You know what I mean? So like right. I really right. know what you mean by there's things that you can grade one level – and uh, things you can um, still recognize more value in. Right. Colby Jansen. That's the guy's name. <laughs> that was killing me. Oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, Joey, take us out of this. Um, let's, 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 uh, let's assume this episode's going up sometime in the next uh, two weeks. Uh, go ahead and plug something. Every Tuesday here on the Cage Club Podcast Network, listen to Too Fast, Too Forever, which you run recently. Nico and his husband, Kevo, run an entire lap, last lap. We are currently in the midst of showing the movies to someone who does not like them as much as Nico and Kevo did, which is very difficult. And very. I saw her shitting on it last night on Twitter, and I was like, oh my it's god, every let two, it go. Every two weeks, every two weeks, it's the same thing. But here we are, we are in currently lap eight of too fast to forever to tokyo drift lap as we gear up for f9 coming now in june we are watching all movies in the franchise but also movies about japan and with japanese leads and asian leads and asian cinema and we are we've done our lady snowblood movies we got some uh shogun assassin and baby cart um you know uh lone wolf and cub movies coming up we got a lot of stuff going on every tuesday too fast to forever the fast and furious podcast nico uh, every Tuesday and Friday, you guys can get an hour and a half of X-Men as the X's for podcast team deep dive into everything Mutant released each week. Now, amazingly, this timing could not be more incredible. Kevo and I are officially kicking back off Husbands, more or less. Yeah. We are going to kick things off covering every project coming up for the next three years. It's already recorded, so, like, I can promise it's good. And, um, yeah, so uh, X is for podcast, and uh, you've got some comic stuff coming out later this year, and I've got some music stuff coming out later this year, so just uh, find me on uh, Twitter. Find me on Twitter at EcoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And uh, pay me to be amazing. 
Joey, Nico, uh, great conversation. It's one I've been wanting to have for a long time. Um, thank you guys for taking the time. what's funny is like that's how he flirts too i have to pray now so episode's over sorry guys